All right, good, good, good. I don't want you getting too friendly. Take a seat. Wow, uh, welcome to Northwest Hills. I, I have a question more for myself than anything, and maybe for staff and kind of planning. Uh, this is a moment of honesty here. Raise your hand if you uh, came to first service primarily because, yeah, everyone, yeah, you all came to first service, primarily because it is sunny and you want to go home quickly and do something this afternoon. Who is that like kind of your conversation with? Raise your hand high if that is the case. If I wasn't preaching, that's what I would be doing too. I'm just, this is totally just curious. All right, fair enough. Good, welcome. Welcome to Northwest Hills. If you got a Bible uh, or an app, open it up to First John. It's a book towards the very end of the Bible. Revelation's the last book, Jude, third, second, First John. I promise you I will be preaching from this text today. But it's going to take a long, long time to get there. Um, and it's, it's really more of an introduction than anything. The, the truth of the matter is, I had this sermon planned to preach January 8th. And January 7th, at 7 p.m., I was standing outside of uh, the lobby here, and I was in six inches of snow, and talking to Jeremy, going, you know what, Jeremy, we probably should call service tomorrow. I don't want, uh, you know, I don't want a sweet man like Mark Lamberty falling and getting hurt and liability and so and such. So uh, we decided to cancel it. And then the next weekend, uh, my wife's grandmother passed away, so we went to California. The three weeks after that, I was uh, teaching a history class, so I didn't preach. Uh, I was scheduled then to preach this sermon again, February 19th. Well, February 16th, my grandmother passed away. So we went to California again, and, uh, and the week after that, uh, Rich was finishing a three-week uh, series, so it just made sense to keep it going, and then we had Go Focus, and, and so here we are, finally, I don't know, two and a half months after I was supposed to preach. So I, I, I either thought kind of one of two things, either this is like so good that Satan's doing everything that he can to keep me from preaching it, or it's so bad that God's doing everything he can to pre- keep me from preaching it. And then kind of as this last week unfolded, uh, a number of things started happening that um, literally to the point where I, I cried a couple times like, oh my goodness, God, you're pulling this all together in a really, really unique way that I hope translates and I hope we can pick up on, on kind of these pieces coming together. So um, to fill you in on, on the big picture of my hope in early January, just so it doesn't feel like completely out of nowhere... In December, a couple weeks before Christmas, I started First John. I don't know if you remember that. That was a long time. It was last year. Uh, the two weeks before Christmas, we looked at uh, the first chapter in First in John. But I didn't really give any context to the whole book. I was really kind of just talking about Jesus. It was Christmas. That kind of just made sense that we'd look at Jesus in that time. But, uh, but today what I wanted to do is I want to really take a big step back and look at what I believe uh, is a very, very important theme through the book of First John. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more as we go why this theme, I think, is so important. But before we do that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask that you would join me, and we'll get rolling from here. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be able to share your word this morning. Um, God, I've been thinking about this message for quite some time, and um, really just as it's been kind of fleshed out and in so many different phases, you've been doing some unique things in my life and some unique things in the life of our church. And God, I I thank you that your timing is perfect. God, I thank you that um, no matter where we are in this room, no matter how encouraged we were when we walked in or, or how down we were when we walked in, 
Lord, you are a God who cares for each of us individually where we are. And you've got a word for each of us today. So we love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So one of, the, one of the really neat things about a church like ours is that we are truly what I would call multi-generational. Um, it, is, it is true statistically, and even just looking around, we don't have one demographic that is uh, much more represented than another demographic. We've got, across the board, a very evenly distribution of people, and, and I really appreciate that. I actually really enjoy that. Um, it does make it a little bit difficult, though, as a preacher to communicate. I'm not primarily targeting one audience, right? And so the felt needs of a 65-year-old, um, recently retired person, is going to be very different than your 19-year-old college freshman undergrad. Like we experience the world a little bit differently. Our needs are different. Our desires are different. And so how do I communicate something from the Bible in a way that is loose enough that we can all kind of feel it and grab onto it, but tight enough that actually compels us to go somewhere. And so over the last couple months, as I've been thinking about the next series, uh, and really over the last year, as I've kind of been watching uh, the, the cultural climate of our world, and particularly of the U.S. and Oregon and Corvallis, I've been asking myself, what are the biggest cultural challenges today when it comes to the church and when it comes to Christianity? It's been a rack in my brain over the last couple months, particularly about this question, and I, 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 I've landed on First John because I believe that what is addressed in First John ultimately gets after one of the, and this is my opinion, one of the bigger issues going on in the church today. And so a question that I want to ask again and again and again uh, about once a month over the next year or so as we go through this book is how does Christian faith and culture interact It's a broad question. I know it's a very broad question. It's broad on purpose. We're going to look at a lot of different facets of it. But I think it's a question that a lot of us, especially maybe recently, have been asking. Like, what does it look like to be a Christian and interact and engage with culture? Because, uh, let's be honest, culture is saying a lot of things about Christianity. And I think a lot of us uh, who who say that we're Christians are finding ourselves um, maybe a bit lost in culture a bit, maybe a bit confused Uh, maybe really just unsure of how we fit in the bigger landscape of what's going on uh, politically, socially, um, even relationally in our community. And so that's a question that I want to get after um, as we study the book of 1 John here. So looking at culture, when when culture is talking about uh, not necessarily Christianity itself, but kind of Christian values and morals, culture is pretty divided. All right, by and large, you've got a, a couple of different, very, uh, very distinct lenses that people look at Christian values and Christian culture through. You've got kind of like your, your Fox News lens on one side that's kind of saying, okay, here's, here's kind of this general uh, moral nostalgia, uh, back in the 50s type thinking, let's get back there. That's kind of Fox News style, kind of really conservative. And then you've got a very different lens and different side where, you know, you've got your NPRs, let's... Let's kind of move forward. Let's, we need progress, right? We need to deconstruct what we originally thought was good for our country, and we need, we need to move forward in, pro, in progress and get away from kind of some of those kind of older, archaic, kind of uh, Neanderthal thinking and move into the 21st, 22nd century as we move forward. And, and the divides in our country are very, very wide, and they're very deep. Is this not true? Yeah. 
I think we saw this very clearly in our presidential election. I'm not trying to like stir up politics, but I know like these are things that, that all of us are really thinking about and have been thinking about. Right? We've got um, our current president, Donald Trump, who, who ran on a platform of make America great again. Right? In, in my humble opinion, I thought the, the billion-dollar question there was, what do you mean by again? Right? Assuming that there was a time period that, man, we need to bring life back to that time period when everything was apparently great. And then you had another candidate whom we voted for in the primaries, Bernie Sanders, who, who literally couldn't be a more opposite candidate. You've got a generational split, absolutely, when it comes to these two. You've got Bernie, who, again, is saying, we need to deconstruct all of our social values, our political values, and we need to move forward. Forget these ancient ideas. We need to move forward. And you have the arguments within the church, right? Uh, I'm just going to be really honest. You've got an older generation of Christians saying that we'll take inflammatory behavior and rhetoric if it stops abortion and if it stops a liberal agenda. Right? By and large, across America, this is an older generation of Christians saying this and voting this. But then you have a younger generation of Christians kind of shaking their fists at the older generation, saying, how dare you put up with that type of behavior? Where's justice? Where's mercy? Where's compassion? And these are the conversations within the church Right? Are these not conversations you've had with your own friends and families and neighbors? If you are not shaking your head, you are lying. Or you are sticking your head in the sand and you're discouraged, which I will address later as well. (laughs) And then, here's the thing. Those are conversations within the church. The conversations that are going on outside of the church, about the church, are very different. This word evangelical, man, it's almost become a cuss word in culture, right? I mean, it's interesting. The, the word evangelical, I, I don't know the etymology of the word, but I do know originally it was used, I think maybe in the 40s, uh, to kind of separate itself from the word fundamentalist. Well, now it's synonymous with the word fundamentalist, and culture is using the word evangelical to paint a very, uh, a very interesting picture about uh, Christians that, quite frankly... I think a lot of us in culture, I think a lot of us are saying, where do I fit in? I want to say something, but do I say something? I don't feel like I fit in this camp, and maybe I don't feel like I fit in this camp. I'm, I'm kind of like in between. And again, this isn't just about politics. I really hope that you're not hearing me just say political statements. Um, but I think a lot of Christians, as far as like what it looks like to actually be a Christian in our city, in our neighborhoods feel like I just, I don't, I don't know what to do right now. I kind of feel stuck. In fact, I feel really discouraged. And I feel like I really want to stick my head in the sand. I mean, I, I know a lot of people, myself included, who just, I just don't want to read anything anymore. And, and I'm very hesitant to, to say, well, I do this or I do that. In fact, I don't know if you're paying attention, but there's, there's a movement towards Christians not even saying I'm a Christian anymore, but they're saying I'm a follower of Jesus, kind of narrowing it down. I don't want to say that I'm an evangelical. I don't want to say that I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm just kind of a follower of Jesus. So where do I fit in culture? I think what's so fascinating, and I'm going to make a major connection here as we move throughout this, this day, is that these were the exact same questions that were being asked in Ephesus 
2,000 years ago. The, the church that was, uh, that was behind the book of 1 John was experiencing the exact same thing. They had different political climate, nonetheless, but there was a split amongst the church. There was a group of people who had left the church, who had thought that they had, had perceived progress, and they were uh, putting a lot of pressure on people who were still in the church, saying, you guys need to progress. You need to move forward with us. Stop with your archaic Neanderthal thinking. Move forward. Progress with us. Causing a lot of tension in the church. This letter... Uh, we have the author, John, as, as an elder. He's a father. He's an old man at this point, writing to the church. Writing as if to say, you know what, in this climate, hold on. Be resilient. Hold on to the tenets of faith that were there when Christ came, as he walked with Christ. He was, he was a disciple of Christ and also an elder in this church. And he's writing again as if a grandfather's writing to his grandkids saying, you know what, hold on. I know there's a lot of pressure around the world right now. I know in your city, in your church, there's a lot of pressure right now. But hold on. So my contention in this book and in this study is to kind of look at the church where we are. To look at culture, to look at what was going on in the book of, of 1 John, to look at what was going on in the city of Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus. Why did this split happen? What were people thinking? How were people feeling? And to say ultimately that I think that for you and I, uh, to be a Christian moving forward, to be a follower of Jesus, might very well look quite different moving forward than it has in the past. Now before you jump to conclusions, yeah, certainly the tenets of faith are the same. But what it looks like to be a Jesus follower in the city perhaps is going to look very different. To be a part of a church, to to be an effective church, perhaps is going to look very different in a climate that we are walking into. You see, coming out of the last decade or two, what was the big word that was used in terms of church and culture and leadership? It It was this word of relevance, wasn't it? Like, we need to be relevant as a church. This was the message that, that was talked about at, at most church leadership conferences. And we need to be relevant. And so churches kind of moved to this big seeker-sensitive movement where everything needs to look like the rest of the culture. When you walk in, it needs to look like Starbucks. It needs to feel like Starbucks. And, and I'm all for a church looking good. Like, I'm, I'm for that. You don't want a church looking bad. Um, but the idea ultimately was like, we, we don't want to look any different than anyone else. So, so pastors had sweet hair and cool skinny jeans and good clothes. And, and we had rocking bands. And, and through this seeker-sensitive movement, like there was a lot of church growth. Like churches were planted and, you know, two years later there's a thousand people at this church. But then studies have showed that as that happened and as that rise took place, there was a huge revolving door amongst people in these churches. Where once attention was no longer maintained... The message wasn't really that important because it was the environment, it was the experience that mattered. And with the quick rise came the quick fall. But with the quick rise came also this kind of philosophy of people going in there saying, you know what, ultimately uh, everything is, uh, is relevant, Right? So, so yeah, you're relevant, but nah, everything's kind of relevant anyways. Truth is relevant. You can have your truth, I can have mine. I've even preached this here in the last six years. But with that, again, kind of came this lackluster laziness that said, yeah, you can have your truth, I can have mine, but ultimately, again, showing no one really cares about truth. But here's the deal. That tone is changing rapidly. People are starting to care a whole lot more now 
than they did 5, 10, 15 years ago in terms of church engagement. They care what the church is actually saying, what the church is actually believing. And newsflash, the church is on the wrong side of history. This is what culture is saying. They're saying history is moving in a direction. And your beliefs, your beliefs that a God exists who's created the world, who prescribes moral values on some level, those beliefs are archaic. Catch up, Christians. You, you don't want to be left behind. Have, has anyone heard this type of conversation before? Yes, it is happening. And if you haven't, you're being introduced to it for the first time. Be prepared. It's happening. Culture is saying Christians are now the ones who need a new salvation. They're the ones who need to be saved from this old way, old school style of thinking. In Ephesus, this is the exact same thing. The exact same conversation was taking place. This group of people left the church in this new progress, this new wave of thinking, and the pressure was the same thing. You guys, you need to catch up. You're behind. You need to move forward. You need to progress. You need a new salvation. In the book of 1 John, this is where we're going to actually get in the text here, I promise. We see no less than six reasons why people left the church. Okay, remember though, this is, this is John writing to the church. So the, the, he's writing to the people who were there. But it's kind of a reverse way of explaining why people had left. So I'm going to give you six points. I am going to rail through these so fast. So if you're a note taker, you might want to just write down the bullet point and write down the reference. Because I'm going to go through 20 or 30 different references in the text as to why people were leaving the church. But I'll give you pretty distinct six reasons. And then we'll get going and land this plane. First reason why people in Ephesus were leaving this church to what they considered a new salvation is that they claimed that they had a new revelation of God. They knew better than God, right? Your old ways of thinking, they need to be updated. We see this in four places in chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. 2-4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 2.9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Reason number two, they set their own morality. They said, you know what, maybe there are a few defects in us, but ultimately I'm not morally wrong. We have a new standard here. Chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, 8, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The third reason why people were leaving the church, they denied that Jesus was God. Maybe he was a good teacher, maybe he was a moral guy, but certainly not God. Chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies that the Father and the Son. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in, and of, in himself. The fourth reason why people left the church is that they denied that Jesus came physically. 
chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The fifth reason. Their lives were marked by a lack of love for people. 2.11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 3.15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Chapter 4.8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot say, I love God whom he has not seen. And the sixth reason why people were leaving the church is despite their claims of moral perfection, they actually lived in darkness. We see this three different places. No one in verse uh, 6 of chapter 3, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Chapter 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And lastly, chapter 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are of the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So six reasons why people left the church. They claimed that they knew better than God. They set their own morality They denied that Jesus was God. They denied that Jesus was a physical human being. Their lives were marked by a lack of love for people. And despite their claims to moral perfection, they were actually living incorrectly and living apart from God. Most commentators will say that this movement was the early forms of Gnosticism. It's a worldview that you've probably heard, I know you've heard me say uh, multiple times. It's a worldview that has huge implications on the early church. Uh, ultimately, it was formed in more of its proper sense in, in kind of the beginnings of the second century. But these are the, the first ideas of it being formed in the first century. Gnosticism was this idea that there was a God who existed, who created the world. And as he created the world, he tried to make the world perfect, but he couldn't do it. The world that he created was a knockoff of the, of the correct world that he was trying to get after, right? Like a knockoff. You ever, you ever been to, uh, I don't know, New York and, and the guy's got the jacket and all the Rolex watches? Is that still a thing? I, I haven't been there in 15 years. Is that still a thing? Absolutely, right? Uh, maybe a little more modern context. You go on Facebook and you see these advertisements for Ray-Bans for $19, those aren't real Ray-Bans. Just throwing that out there. Um, I've had some of my parents all excited. Look, I got Ray-Bans for 19 bucks. No, you didn't. Um, and so the world that was created was seen as this knockoff. It wasn't quite the world that, that God wanted. And the reason that they, they believed it was a knockoff is because the world existed physically. They thought that all physical matter was evil. That, that, the, that the flesh, that, that human beings, that, that the, the earth, the ground, that these were all evil. And ultimately, what was considered good were non-physical things, spiritual things. And the fact that this earth was physical was seen as, as really not a good world at all. And so the idea was, if you can find yourself understanding that truth and understanding that in order to know God, you have to, to get into the spiritual realm only and, and move, remove yourself from the physical side, then you will finally be enlightened. So this group of people who are enlightened would look at the church and say, you know what, you guys are, are stuck in the dark. 
You're stuck believing that Jesus was God. You're stuck believing that sin is a problem. You're stuck uh, in in this weird standard of holiness. You, You have it all wrong. As a result, they were marked by a staunch arrogance. An arrogance that surrounded themselves with one another only to say that we have the truth you guys are missing the truth completely, and come, come join us. Come figure out what it's like to be enlightened once and for all, to have this new meaning of God. What's really interesting, and I think this is absolutely true of the world today, is looking at what the concepts of, of ultimately these people are getting after. So when, when our world and our culture is saying we need progress, we need to move forward, what are the things that are celebrated in that? But most of these are really good things, right? We want peace. We want world peace. This is a good thing, right? We want justice. We, we want virtue. We want what the Bible describes as biblical shalom, the peace of God. We want that here and now. Like that, this is what culture is, is trying to get after. We want, we want a Corvallis where there is no crime. Right? We want a Corvallis where, where all things are good, where there are um, you know, unicorns bouncing through Chip Ross Park. Like, like that's what the world wants. And we want that too, don't we? We want this kingdom of peace. But what's interesting is in this desire for this kingdom of peace, we've taken away a king. There is no king in this kingdom of peace. In this kingdom of peace, the, the king becomes ourselves. We, we want a crown on our own head, don't we? I mean, there's no talk of, of, a, of a king in this kingdom. The king is the individual. The individual who gets to decide for themselves what they want to do. The individual who has unparalleled potential. The individual who gets to decide for him or herself what is right and what is wrong. In this new salvation... I I truly believe that there are a lot of Christian values in here. However, you're missing some key things, right? It's Christian values minus any talk of personal sacrifice, minus any talk of a restrained sexual ethic, minus any talk of of, uh, individual responsibility or accountability, minus any talk of anything being non-physical, like anything uh, evil or, or sin or darkness, And again, I I think in the middle of this, I think a lot of Christians just have no idea what to think. I think a lot of us feel pretty discouraged. But here's the other thing. In the middle of this, if this promise of a better future, in the promise of a better hope, in this Gnostic view of thinking that we are progressing, while, while culture is promising something better, what is the other reality that we're faced with every single day? We're faced with the news that we read every single day. That this great kingdom of peace that we all want, we can't seem to ever get there. Right? I mean, it doesn't take 30 seconds reading any news article to read, oh no, we're not in a kingdom of peace. There's not peace on this earth. You know, and maybe you'll have an argument like, well, we need more education. We need less income inequality. We need to get to a place where everyone can be happy and healthy and wealthy. Then we will get rid of what we would consider wrong or hurtful things of the world. Right? But again, I mean, even yesterday, I was reading an article, an article that really made me a bit sick. Um, of this, of a woman, Denise Huskins, uh, kidnapped two years ago, 
by a Harvard-educated attorney. Abused, assaulted. He was just sentenced last week, 40 years in prison. But it's these stories that you look at and culture saying, okay, we need progress, we're progressing, we need peace, but then you're faced with reality that, wait a second, we're not there. So what is culture's answer to that? I think culture is having a hard time because the peace that it longs, it doesn't ever seem to get. And once again, I think as Christians, we find ourselves pretty discouraged in this as well. I'll be honest, uh, I've found myself really discouraged over the past couple months. Right, coming through whatever cycle of political anything, it's been pretty discouraging. There's been a number of events in, in my and Megan's life, like people dying, that's been discouraging. Um, we're three and a half years without a senior pastor, and that's been discouraging. It's been raining every single day. <laughs> I, I was hoping it would be raining today just to feel that much more discouraging, but this is great. Right, this last week, um, the beginning part of last week, I was, just, I was really down. I was really discouraged. I, I went to the CB Northwest uh, Pastors Annual Enrichment Conference. I don't think anyone had been in our church for a very long time, maybe 10, 15, 20 years. And uh, on the way there, uh, it, just get comfortable. This is going to be a long story. Um, it's pouring rain. I mean, it literally rained the entire time I was there. Rain, 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 sideways, sideways. It's up in Seaside. So I go all the way up there, and uh, I, I'm staying at a hostel, which was quite the experience. I, I've stayed at hostels all over the world. I think they're a ton of fun. You get to meet a lot of different people. I've never stayed at one in the U.S. And so I thought, you know, okay, this will be fun. I'll stay at a hostel. Um, so I check in. I meet the guy uh, who's kind of running the hostel. And, and we talked over the phone earlier. And apparently he had no idea what a pastor is. And, and that's always kind of fun in those, con- in those contexts. But it's also a lot of pressure. Like, if, if, if I'm the only, like, physical representative of Jesus, like, I need to, like, actually represent him uh, in this context. So I'm feeling this pressure, but I, I meet him and uh, he's showing me around the place and he's taking me to the room and uh, we're meeting another staff member. And as we meet this other staff member, he's telling me, oh, this is the name of the guy who's in the dorm with you. And the other staff member says, oh yeah, it's been weeks. I still can't get that name. And so my first little red flag went off. Okay, it's been weeks that this guy's living in here. Okay, I'm, I, this guy's living in this room. Okay, this is all right. Um, so he takes me to the room. Clearly this guy is living in here. Um, which, you know, whatever. I, it's, it's, it is what it is. I, I'm by myself. I can, I can stay anywhere by myself. I'm not that concerned about it. My wife's not there. It's just me. I can stay there. Um, but it was a little bit weird. And uh, so I go and I check into the conference. Um, again, it's, it's pouring rain. And they give you this booklet. And I get this booklet. And it's about 50 pages long. It kind of gives you the schedule and different order of events and breakouts and so and such. Uh, and apparently our association has gone through... Uh, some sort of assessment or evaluation, and there was a report in the back. So I'm reading this report. I kind of read through the whole thing to kind of know what to expect because I'd never been to this conference before. I'm in my car. It's pouring rain, and here I am reading this, this booklet, this assessment. And uh, I read what is a half page of really good things that are going on in our, in our association. It's like, oh, good, half page. And then it's like the next, what felt like 300 pages, which is really more like four or five, was like all the discouraging things that we need to be doing better. It's like, oh, okay, like... This is good news. Great. Thank you. And so I walk into the conference after that, and they got a bunch of booths set up. And I'm, I go to one of the booths, and I start talking to the guy who's at this booth. And for the next 10 minutes, all he's telling me about is how, like, man, the church is just dying. We just have, we have no answer to the world. Evangelism is just... And I just, you know, 
I don't know what's going on. I'm like, oh, wow, thanks for the encouragement. This is, just, this is just awesome. Thank you. I'm just, I feel so encouraged and uplifted. Awesome. So I go, I go into the conference, uh, and the first breakout is, uh, is a group of kind of local area pastors. And so this is kind of mid-Willamette Valley, north or south, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, and I know a couple of these guys through Church of the Valley stuff, but I'd never been to like the larger regional gathering. And sure enough, like we're famous in, uh, in this region. Uh, apparently everyone and their mother was saved in this church, which is awesome. <laughs> but everyone also knows that we've been three and a half years without a pastor. And so every single person was like, Man, what is going on? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, it's nice to meet you too. Awesome. Um, it's like, this is great. And people were really encouraged that I was there. Like, this is great. It's great to have someone from your church. This is awesome. Um, you know, they're telling me, like, we've had 700 kids since your church. And, uh, okay, great. Um, and so then I go, I go to the, the, the night session, and it was, it was okay. I, I was pretty discouraged. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention, to be honest. And I don't know. Elders, you didn't hear that. But I was there physically. <laughs> um, and then I go back to the dorm room. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I, you know typically, like, I'm, I'm all for, like, going out and meeting a bunch of people. That's, that is definitely my MO. But I was tired and discouraged and down. I'm like, I'm just going to go back. I'm going to read. I'm going to prepare for this sermon on Sunday. And so I go back to the hostel. And uh, my, my roommate, my buddy, he wasn't there. I was like, okay, good. So I'm, I'm there. It's, I don't know, it's 11.15. I am in bed, lights out. I'm ready to go to bed. And I have my phone on. I'm, I don't know, I'm watching YouTube cat videos or something like that. And, uh, and sure enough, here comes, I'll call him Joe. He comes and flips on the light. And I'm instantly reminded why I got married at 21, because I hate male roommates. Um, <laughs> so he flips on the light, and we just start talking. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, Again, it slips. I'm a pastor, so I got to be nice all of a sudden. And, uh, <laughs> and so he starts smoking something. He, he goes out of the room, leaves the light on. I don't know, it's 1130, 1145. I get up, I turn the light off. He, he jumps back in for a sec, flips the light off, leaves, light's still on. I'm just like, God, <laughs> please, like this is my life right now. And, um, and he was up. All night. I, before, he went, before he went to bed, I said, so what time do you usually wake up? He's like, 11. It's like, 11? Who wakes up at 11? And sure enough, I mean, he was up all night. And, and because I have learned from my elders to kind of uh, filter what I say from stage, I will not describe to you the scene that happened at night, but I'll just say that there were, he got really sick. And we'll leave it at that. And didn't clean up anything. Uh, and so I'm waking up in the morning going, oh my goodness, this is my life. Um, needless to say, I left the hostel and got a hotel room, which was great. But um, I went to the, the message the next morning. I went to the main session. And I don't know if any of you know George Verwer. He's the, he's the uh, I guess, the main uh, founder of Operation Mobilization. And he starts out, he's really old, he's like 85, and he looks frail, but this guy is incredible man of God. And he starts out, and he says, okay, pastors, I want you to turn to Acts 20, 22. So turn there. He starts out, and he says this. He says, and now, behold, I'm, these are the words of Paul. He says, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. And then he goes, okay, if that's not enough, he goes, I want you to go to Acts 23, 12. So we turn to Acts 23, 12. Uh, The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. Then he starts talking and says, I doubt any one of you have ever been hunted by over 40 men who have made an oath not to eat or sleep until they've killed you. And then he addresses what exactly what I was feeling. He says, you know what? I bet a ton of you are tired. And he says, I bet a ton of you are discouraged. He says, you know what? I have been there. So much of my life, I've wrestled with huge doubts with God. So much of my life, some of the biggest prayers I've ever had, I've never seen answered. And then he just goes off on this encouragement of do not give up. Hang in there. And he had this awesome British accent. And he said, if you don't want to get hurt, don't play rugby. And he just he kept railing on this. And then, I'm, I'm going to land this plane. It all comes together here. He, he goes on and on, and, and he's basically talking about, like, man, if you're in Christian ministry, and he goes down this list, like, if you're in Christian ministry, if you're a leader, if you are a human being, you are going to be discouraged because people are going to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to come into seasons of difficulty. This is what it means to be a human being. And then where does he go? He lands, he doesn't land his whole plane, but he said it, and to me it felt like it was all coming together. He goes to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And he says this. These are the words of uh, John, which is where we're starting in our whole picture. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with our Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now think this through with me just for a second. So John starts out and he says, he paints a picture for what life ought to be like. We ought to not sin. Right? This is, this is that Narnia. This is what culture wants. Right? We want this world where there is no brokenness. Where there's no sin, right? We want a Corvallis where all of our leaders and officials sacrificially serve their city above their own needs. Right? We want a city where there are no needs for housing. We want a city where there are no kids who are hungry. We want a city whose dads are all present. We want a a city where no one has to worry about locking their doors ever. Right? Isn't this the city that we want? Isn't this what John was saying? I'm urging you, do not sin. I'm writing you for this, for this picture of perfection. That's what everyone wants. But then he says, here's verse 2. Here's reality. Bring the plane down. Here is reality. If you do sin, we have an advocate. Newsflash, you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. It's going to hurt. You're going to hurt people. You're going to disappoint people. You're going to be frustrated. If you're in relationship with anyone ever, you are going to fail them. 
Right? As a pastor, I have failed you at times. If you don't know that, you don't know me well enough. As a spouse, you have failed your spouses. As a neighbor, you have failed your neighbor. As a coworker, as a boss, you have failed all these people. And these things hurt. People feel this. This is the world that we live in. But we have an advocate. We have a way forward. We have radical grace in Jesus. And this is where the plane finally comes to a stop. In Jesus, there's finally an answer that the world is looking for. We want this peace. We don't ever seem to get there. Jesus is saying, I offer radical forgiveness through radical grace. I have paid for all of this. There will be a time and a season in the future where, yes, heaven will come. And it will be perfect. And there will be this land that we've all longed for. But in the meantime, Christians, our spot in culture is this. Here's the end of part one of where Christian faith and culture interact. My faith offers an answer to what the world longs for, a culture and a kingdom of peace. Because we have an advocate who died for every injustice and who's bringing a new kingdom of peace. It doesn't mean that we will ever have perfect peace here and now, but it means that we can have forgiveness again and again and again, and we can be beacons of peace again and again, knowing that all day, or that one day, God will make all things right. And so my hope is that as Christians in a culture that we are struggling to figure out how we fit in, my prayer is that we would start recognizing that we have received radical grace and that we are people who bring peace to people who are looking for it. Real, lasting, long peace. Would you pray with me? Father God, a lot of us have seen um, a glimpse of something great that we long for a glimpse of of a better future and a better hope. Lord, culture wants that. Our city wants that. Every one of us wants that. But then we're face to face with our brokenness. Lord, like your text says, I'm, I'm writing so that you wouldn't sin. I'm writing so that you would create this incredible place. But then if you do, we have an advocate. And Lord, we realize we have a need for an advocate because we fail, every one of us. And Lord, I thank you that you gave your life for my forgiveness, that you paid what I couldn't and that we now have peace with you, most importantly, and that we bring peace to those around us and ultimately we will be with you forever in a place of perfect peace. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.